Well, really good to see all of you here this morning. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, my name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a delight to have you with us. I've got to meet quite a few new people in the last service, and we've got some new folks here, and we want you to know that we're delighted to have you with us. We'd love to get to know you better. Uh, one of the things that we do as a church is we actually take a book of the Bible, and we walk all the way through it, passage by passage. We believe that God's revelation will bring transformation through his people. And we have actually, passage by passage, walked through the gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 16, and I'm so glad you're here with us today. You know, some people think that in the ancient times that people were just gullible. They had a tendency just to kind of believe anything, whatever someone said. they just like, okay, well, I'll just believe that. Uh, I want you to know that people in ancient times, we're talking centuries ago, even thousands of years ago, they were not stupid, okay? C.S. Lewis refers to this as chronological snobbery, the idea that people from long-ago times just had a propensity to believe whatever anybody told them. That's actually not the case. I mean, for instance, they, they knew that if someone was dead, they remained dead. Ken Davis uh, tells a, a story of uh, a lady that had a, a German shepherd and this German shepherd was kind of like a handful, and, and one time their pet, German shepherd, made their way to the neighbor who they'd had a lot of conflict with and some problems, and somehow their German shepherd managed to get their pet rabbit out of the cage and basically shake it to death, okay? And so she saw her German shepherd with that rabbit in his mouth, and she ran out of the house. You couldn't believe what she was seeing. You've got to be kidding. Our neighbor's rabbit... And she tried to get the dog to let the rabbit loose. It wouldn't happen, so she got a broom, and that kind of helped the dog to see that she meant business about this. She gets the dead rabbit, like, what in the world am I going to do? So she decides that she's going to bathe the rabbit, kind of clean it up, does so, takes a blow dryer, and makes, makes the rabbit back to its original fluffiness, and then actually combed the rabbit to look like a rabbit, and then snuck it back over to the neighbors, put it in the cage, rested it up there, left. About an hour later, she starts hearing this scream from her neighbor. Ah! So she like, what's the matter? She goes over. She goes, this lady goes, my rabbit, my rabbit. My rabbit died. We buried it. And now it's back in the cage. You know, how does this happen? You know, and he's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know anything about that, right? You see, I want you to know that people in ancient times, they would know that like if a rabbit was dead, it's going to remain dead. They'd also know that if a person died, they're going to remain dead, which makes the question that we are posing today so critically important. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? I mean, friends, that is the question. Remember from last week, and as we finished off Mark chapter 15, we saw that Jesus' body was laid in a tomb. In fact, it was certified that he is dead. You remember, you got Joseph of Marathia. He actually requests the body from Pontius Pilate. They and a guy by the name of Nicodemus, another ruler in the Sanhedrin, they wrap Jesus' body in a hundred pounds of linen with myrrh and aloes because the Jews didn't embalm. They actually like would wrap them up in all this linen and because the body would decompose, they'd want to put these different um, spices with it to try to counteract the smell. 
That's what Joseph did. Remember, there was a centurion, the guy, the exactor mortis, who stood in front of the cross of Jesus. And remember how he declared, this is certainly the Son of God, when he watched him breathe his last? I can assure you, the exactor mortis, a man who specialized, a centurion, in the crucifixion of criminals, knew when a guy was dead and he declared it. And we also see that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, when he actually sent an inquiry, is Jesus really dead? And he got the affirmative. And then, of course, we have two women that are even named that we see that they actually saw, you see that there in verse 47, where Jesus was laid in a tomb. He was in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, a tomb that no one had ever used before. It's a family tomb. Jesus' body all wrapped up, placed in there. A large stone is placed in front of that so that there's no grave robbers, no animals are going to get in there. And that tomb then is sealed shut. And there it was certified. But the question that you've got to know the answer to is this. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? So important is this question that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, you are wasting your time right now. Do you know that? You would be better off laying around in bed waiting for the cowboys to show up on TV because if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, this is just a meaningless exercise. You're just gathering a bunch of nice people that took a shower last night. If, you're, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead... Your faith is worthless. So did he? Well, that's why Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, is so key and so critically important. We look at the evidence that substantiates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the first is the testimony of the empty tomb. Take a look. Verse 1. Now, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. So these women who had actually seen where Jesus was buried, they actually then come on the first day, that Sunday. Now, so Jesus' body was put in the grave on that late Friday afternoon. Remember, he died right when the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. And his body then was buried. It was all wrapped up at the end of that Friday, remained there all day Saturday. It's now Sunday. You see, Saturday is the Sabbath, and the word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word meaning to stop. It's where they ceased all activity. It was declared in the law, it's one of the Ten Commandments, that they were to stop and to use that as a day of recognizing God's gracious provision in their lives, a time for worship and for family, for celebration and rest. And so it was at the end of that Sabbath, so that Saturday evening, as the sun set, Then they went and they collected and bought some spices and some myrrh, and they were going to anoint the body of Jesus, this buried, wrapped-up cocoon. It was an external application. That was their plan. And they did so uh, because they were showing love, respect, and devotion to Jesus, who had died. I mean, after all, they had been part of the traveling group. They were the ones that had secured lodging, food, and some of them supplied from their own finances, the means for which Jesus and the apostles would go from place to place. I mean, it takes money to do ministry, and they supplied. These were key people, key disciples. 
And certainly their hearts were crushed and broken when Jesus died in such a horrific fashion. And so they provide, and they're, they're coming with their spices. Uh, we see in verse 2 that, uh, that very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So it was certainly their plan, very early in the morning. They're, they're leaving. We, it's interesting, when you take all the gospel accounts, you see that in John 20, beginning in verse 1, that Mary Magdalene goes ahead. Mary Magdalene, the, this woman who had seven demons that had been cast out of her by Jesus, had just this tremendous love and devotion for him. I mean, you always see that. When God does great things in your life, you respond with devotion and love and delight. And Mary Magdalene was the leader of the women. And so it looks as if she goes ahead first. Perhaps she's the one, she's like, well, we've got to find some men to move this massive stone. And so she shows up, and when she actually gets to the grave, why she sees that the stone has already been moved away, she looks in, and there is no Jesus. There's the wrapped-up cocoon, 100 pounds of wrappings and linen there, face cloth off the side. She's like, what? No! She hightails it back, and she actually goes to the disciples, and she reports and says this in John 20, verse 2. She says this, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so, as this is taking place here, you have these women, and you see them here, and they're making their way. In verse 3, they have something on their mind. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us? from the entrance of the tomb. That was what they were most concerned about. Would Mary be successful? I mean, we cannot do what we've come to do to anoint the body with this external application of myrrh and aloe and spices if we can't find some men to move that stone. What they didn't know is that this stone uh, had actually been guarded by Roman soldiers. Because to remember... Jesus on multiple times had made this statement that he was going to come back, that he was going to rise again. And you know who believed him? Or at least believed that that was what Jesus was saying and that somehow this was going to be a hoax that was going to be perpetuated upon the Jewish people was the Jewish leadership. So concerned were they that the disciples would somehow manipulate all this and take the dead body of Jesus, hide it somewhere and say, oh, look, he rose, he's alive, or he's certainly not here. And so what they did, they convinced Pilate, hey, this deceiver, there's one big hoax coming down the pike here. We need to make sure the disciples do not take the body of Jesus. And so he gave them a Roman guard, which is going to be a minimum of four soldiers. And they also put a seal on that stone, a Roman seal. So it would have a cord and this like a large like wax seal on it. And it had the Roman seal. And it meant that if you mess with that seal... You break it unauthorized, then you're going to deal with Rome itself. And I'll tell you who's going to win. Rome is. And so they had that, this take place, but they're trying to figure out, like, what is going to happen? And so as they're making their way, they're asking this, this question, who will roll, us, roll away the stone from us that's at the entrance of the tomb? What they don't know, and as it's recorded in other gospel accounts, is that there had been an earthquake, and an angel had appeared. Those Roman soldiers kind of were like shocked into fright because they just couldn't believe what they were seeing. When they come to, they leave. They hightail it back to the Jewish leadership and this story like, oh my goodness, 
Our lives are on the line because our job was to guard this tomb. That stone somehow rolled away. Some shining figure, we don't even know what it is, appears, and the body of Jesus, which we're supposed to guard, is not there. All of this takes place when these women are making their way. And so, verse 4, take a look at this. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. The stone being rolled away wasn't to let Jesus out. It was to let witnesses in. And so, verse 5, look at this, entering the tomb. They saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. They, they enter in, and like there's this young guy, and he's like glistening white. Matthew says it's like his garments were like white like lightning, and, and Jesus' body isn't there. They see the encasement of all those wrapped linens. They see a face cloth off to the side, and they, they witness all of this, and they're like entering the tomb. They see this guy, and he said, verse 6, and he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. He has risen. You see, just like Jesus said, he had risen. It's really interesting. Did the women, did they expect that Jesus was going to rise from the dead? No, of course not. If they did, they wouldn't have purchased all these spices and myrrh and aloes and then make an early morning trip to the grave because if they believed that he was risen or he was going to do as he said, they wouldn't have done those things, right? No, they thought his body was going to be there, that he is dead. You know, Jesus, on multiple occasions, as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, told them, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. He told them that in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Mark 9, verse 9, Mark 9, verse 31. He also told them that in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. But those women, they certainly heard, they heard about it, but they didn't believe it. You know who else didn't believe it's even possible? The disciples, the apostles. No way. There's just not. You would think that Jesus repeating this over and over, that it would like lodged into their head, I'm going to rise again. And you think they would have listened because after all, I mean, Jesus had done miracles. Like they had seen literal miracles, healing, demons cast out. Three different times, he actually raised someone from the dead. You would think that, you know, like, I know they were, they were fearful. I get it. I mean, Peter, I mean, it was a disaster in his denial of Jesus. And in order to really demonstrate that he seriously didn't know Jesus, remember how he amped it up in front of the soldiers and the little servant girl? He started swearing and cursing, right? I mean, that's what you're going to do. If you're really going to make a point and you're going to show people just how, how serious you are, you start swearing, Right? And he did. He's acting like Peter before he knew Jesus, right? And they're all scared because they think they're going to be next. To associate with Jesus, if they beat him like that and put him on a cross, to follow him means that 
you could be next. Rome is pretty serious about putting down an insurrection. And you know, think of it, that, that early morning, why didn't at least one of them say, you know, Jesus kept saying that he was going to rise from the dead. Of course, we know that's not possible, but what would it hurt just to go and check it out? Okay, the women were. Why didn't they? Because you see, this is the point. They are very much like us. It was inconceivable to the first disciples that Jesus could rise from the dead. Just as it's hard for them to believe, just as it is for many of us. I mean, they didn't, had no predisposition whatsoever to think that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. The Greeks, they didn't even believe in a resurrection. The Greeks believed that what would happen is, when you die, your soul is emancipated from your body, right? And that's a good thing. The Jews believed in only like a general resurrection, like like all people would be resurrected, but not like a specific resurrection. And certainly that's the camp the disciples were. They just, there's just no way. <laughs> you don't come back from the dead. And yet the evidence is profound and it's clear. The tomb is empty. The only thing in it are these garments that had once wrapped his body. Jesus' tomb was empty. Let me give you another testimony that we see here in this text. You not only have the testimony of the empty tomb, but you have the testimony of the angelic messenger. You see that? We, we picked it up here in verse 5. When they entered in that tomb, here's this young man sitting at the right. He's wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Understatement. They're literally in shock. That's not what they're expecting. Some young guy, glistening white clothing. That's not at all what they are expecting. And this is an angel. Now, we've got some pretty serious misconceptions on angels. Uh, Many people think that angels have, like, wings on them, okay? And so, like, you know, pretty soon you're going to pull out your little nativity scene and, like, oh, there's a little angel. And I'm going to guess the angel has got some, like, giant wings on him, right? Actually, in the Bible, the angels are very much in like human form, always males. And guess what? Sorry, Hallmark and precious moments, folks. No wings. Ugh. What? Well, I thought I thought they did. Somebody had wings, right? Yeah, they did. The, uh, the you've got the seraphim. Remember that in Isaiah six, the ones that call out, "Holy, holy, holy!" Like we just sang about. They've got six wings. And then you got the cherubim. The cherubim are kind of like have animal and human-like features. But angels come across very much like humans. And yet there's something distinct about them. Power, glistening, bright. And notice when they walk in there, they're not expecting to see an angel. And when they, he says, do not be amazed, or, or it could be like translated alarm, Put yourself in their shoes. So first of all, like, whoa, whoa, the stone has moved away. Where's Mary? And when they walk in there and they see this young guy, shining, brilliant, don't be amazed. I mean, like, of course they're just totally shocked. I mean, wouldn't you be? You wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, hey, thanks for saying that. What was I thinking about just being amazed by that? It'd be the equivalent of, like, you walking into, like, a family mausoleum. And all of a sudden, you'd be greeted by some shining, brilliant, young man, angelic figure. It'd shock you, too. And it's very interesting. You remember when Jesus was born? God uses these angels, a myriad of them, 
And that midnight sky is then suddenly filled with angelic hosts calling out glory. And when Jesus is resurrected, do you know how God announces it? He does so with an angel. We see that there's actually two of them when you look at the different gospel accounts, but Mark is focusing on the one that is speaking. And he says this as they're amazed. He's not here. You see that? Look at verse 6. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they have laid him. Now, I want you to know that the, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, they actually never denied the reality of the empty tomb. How could they? They put a guard, they had it sealed, right? They never denied it. And so what they had to do is concoct a story. Somehow you've got to explain the empty tomb. God has his angel, this messenger, who helps them understand what they're seeing, the only logical and actual conclusion. And yet the Jews, the the Jewish leadership, they said, listen, when those soldiers showed up, you can read about this all in Matthew uh, 28. They said, listen, Okay, I know you guys are really worked up. We will keep you from losing your heads or being executed. Okay, what you're going to say, listen up, and we're going to pay you some money to do this. You just say that you fell asleep, okay? And that those, ooh, those slippery disciples, you know, somehow they worked up a lot of courage and they, uh, they while you were sleeping, because, you know, after all, this is a really boring job, they moved that stone away and they stole the body. And kind of left the wrappings there. Not sure how we did that, but that's what they did. You sell them that. Okay, think about it. That is absolutely preposterous, okay? We're talking Roman soldiers. Hopefully, you're not sleeping on your job, and they're pretty sure they're not going to be sleeping on theirs. And even if they did, okay, like all four of them fell asleep. You think like moving a large stone, like Peter and John, like, let's move this stone. Shh, don't wake up the sleeping soldiers that are standing or sleeping right here in front of this. You really honestly think that? No. Or... Furthermore, this story makes no sense whatsoever, because if they were really asleep, how in the world would they know what was going on, right? I mean, it doesn't make sense, and yet you always find this. You find that uh, you got to explain away the empty tomb. So there's always somebody. It's got some little trick to it. Well, it can be explained away this way, why it's empty. God sends his messenger and says, he has risen. Literally, he has been raised. Christ not only had the authority to raise himself up, but we see that both God the Father and the Holy Spirit were all involved in the resurrection of Jesus. Just like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in creation, so they are in the profound resurrection of Jesus. You remember the angel in Luke 24, verse 5, kind of like chides these women by asking them this question, hey, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Why are you here? Why do you seek the living one among the dead? In the Greek, this is just, this is a one-word sentence. It's simply this, a gerthe. It means he is risen. Egerthe. He is risen. He's not here. You see, what we have is we've got the testimony of the angelic messenger. Let me give you one more 
reason why we uh, know that the resurrection absolutely took place. And that is the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Take a look, verse 7. It says this, But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. He says, go and tell. Two things that the followers of Jesus are to do. Go and tell. It's not enough to be a spectator. They are to be ambassadors. And it gets started very early on in this announcement. You are to go and you are to tell. This is a resurrection responsibility. And notice what he, this angel says, but go and tell his disciples and, do you see that? I've got this underline in my Bible, and Peter. This is so significant. Because Mark, writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, where is he getting all of his information? He's getting it from the apostle Peter, who mentored him, who was discipling him. Because Peter knew a lot about failure, as did Mark. And it's always good when you got someone that can help you walk through that. But do you notice what this angel said? God has him say this. You go tell the disciples and Peter. Where did we leave Peter off? Well, uh, yeah, we left him off uh, denying Jesus three times. uh, And he really got after it, like even with cursing and swearing. Man, I'll tell you what, Peter must have felt so very, very low, right? (laughs) I am worthless. I have denied Jesus himself, the one who loved me immensely. You know, maybe you're like that. Maybe you. You flat out denied Christ. You use his name as like a curse word, just to put a little emphasis, gain a little street cred that you're a cool person that can blaspheme God's name and feel okay about that. Maybe you've, you've done some things that you know are horrifically wrong and sinful. Is there any hope for you? I want you to know, absolutely yes. I went, when Peter heard those words, and Peter, wait, when those women showed up and told him, did he, did, wait, they singled me out and Peter? Man, that would infuse hope in that broken heart in, in ways that you and I might hardly be able to imagine. And so they have this, they're commissioned. They are to be ambassadors. They are uh, to go and to tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he has told you. So they go from perplexity and panic to proclamation. And notice that this is interesting. He says, he's going ahead of you to Galilee, just as he told you. Why, why would the angel be talking about Galilee and he's going, that, that's where Jesus, I mean, they're in Jerusalem, right? That's where this all took place. Galilee's up north, that's where they're from. That's where this all got started. Why is, why is this angel talking about, he's going to go ahead and you are going to see him in Galilee? Because that's what Jesus told them. Remember before the cross, before this all went down, Mark chapter 14, verses 27 and 28, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's exactly what happened. 
When the Passover lambs are being sacrificed at the temple, at that very moment, that's when the perfect lamb of God, the Passover lamb, was sacrificed. But then Jesus says, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. You see, the plan of redemption, the restoration of Israel, the kingdom of God, the mission of the Messiah still moves forward. Jesus is alive and he is still running things. He is still on track. Death can't keep him down because he is alive and he's still moving the mission forward. And these women are commissioned. You go tell those disciples that are holed up in that house. (laughs) You tell them, I'm going ahead of you to Galilee. I am alive. And so look at verse 8. So they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Trembling literally speaks to the idea that their bodies were shaking, and they were absolutely astonished. We actually get our Greek, from this Greek word, we get our word ecstasy from it. They are thrilled and amazed. They are overwhelmed by what they have taken taken in. And here they are. Can't you just see them? Like, whoa. Go and tell. So they start running. Early morning, robes flowing. They're going to come across other people as they're making their way to Jerusalem back to go to the disciples, but they're not telling anyone. They're they're not stopping for anyone. They are gripped with fear, but Matthew tells us also that they're gripped with joy. They are just overwhelmed. They've got news unlike any other. Who is this that could rise from the dead? They knew one thing. Their lives were going to be forever changed Who is this that cannot be held by a tomb? Who is this that has such great compassion and care that he will actually tell the very ones who deserted him and abandoned him, I've got mercy and compassion and we're getting together, just like I said, in Galilee. Who is this that spoke of all these things happening before they actually took place? It's Jesus. He is risen. And according to Luke's account, um, these women uh, all came and they reported to the disciples. Mary had already showed up and, and told them, like Jesus, we can read about this in John 20, that you know, we, don't, we don't know where the body is. These women come and now they're saying, hey, listen, we saw an angel. This angel said, he is not here. He is risen. We've been commissioned. We're to go and to tell you this. You're to, he's going to meet you in Galilee. And oh, by the way, singled you out, Peter. What? We see that like in John 20, that uh, you've got Peter. He makes his way to the tomb to go check this thing out. Uh, they were running. Uh, in fact, we know they're running. And we actually even know who's faster between Peter and John because John, who writes the Gospel of John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records that he got to the tomb faster than Peter. Okay? Peter's slow. John's there. Now, John doesn't go in. He's looking in, but he doesn't walk under and dip into that family tomb. But when Peter goes in and then John follows, they see the linen cloth wrapped up there, all of those linings, that that cocoon where his body had been, and they see it all and they are amazed. In fact, Jesus not only would amaze them that his body's not there, he would make that we know from the New Testament at least 12 resurrection appearances. He would appear at different times to different people, to the disciples. In fact, on one case, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus appeared, as it's recorded, 
to over 500 people at one time, alive. They could see him, hear him, watch him breathe, touch him, put their fingers into the holes in his hand or a hand into his side. And Luke records that the disciples are like total unbelief, like what are we even seeing here? And that Jesus even requests food and eats in front of them. He does all of this to show emphatically he is alive. And I want you to know that these these men, it revolutionized their lives. These women totally changed. These apostles would eventually, in all but one case, suffer martyrdom. Why? Because he is risen. They'd experienced it. They had seen it. And I don't want you to ever think that like, well, just the resurrection of Jesus is just kind of like a little addendum, a little kind of just final little statement, an epilogue or a postscript to the whole story of Jesus. Well, I know that deists and, you know, like a guy like Thomas Jefferson, like, well, we're just going to cut that out of our Bible. (laughs) There's just no way. No, this is the apex culminating event of atonement. This is why Jesus came This is everything. It is why, by the way, the church meets on Sunday and not Friday, because Easter Sunday is the validation of the work that was accomplished on Good Friday when Jesus died on behalf of all of us. You see, if if Christ hasn't been raised, I want you to know that, like all preaching, it's in vain. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, guess what? Your faith is worthless, okay? You're still in your sins. There's really no hope for you. But I want you to know, he has been raised. And here is the testimony right in front of us. When Christ is raised from the grave, it is this validation that God, who had poured out his just wrath, who is upholding justice in the universe, poured it all out on Christ. And Christ paid the penalty for sin. What is the wages of sin? Anybody know? Death. And if death is the penalty and we're going to be freed from that penalty, God himself would have to enter into humanity and die in our place. And he has. And the resurrection of Jesus is the great validation. You know, a criminal, when they uh, get sentenced and they go to prison, judge hands out a sentence, when they, do you know that when they're finished with their sentence, when they've actually paid it all off and they've done it, they've done their time, do you know that then when they're out, they're, Law has no more claim on that individual. They walk out free. The wages of sin is death. God sent his son, and he paid the penalty for our sins. And when he rose again, it is as if God places this banner over the entire earth, the announcement to the nations, paid in full. He is risen. And that means that the power of sin no longer has the stranglehold, the death chokehold on believers' lives because your faith is in the one who has been, who's paid the penalty for sin. It also means that if your faith is really in Jesus, the resurrected one, you will one day have a body like his. But friends, it's got to be more than just some sort of intellectual knowledge. There are a lot of folks that say, oh, yeah, I know about that. Yeah, Jesus... He he died on a cross. I I knew that. I heard he died for sins. Oh, yeah, and Easter. Been there, done that. He rose again. I know those things. I want to know if all you've got is some sort of 
intellectual knowledge about this, you don't have saving faith. You're like, whoa, wait a second here. What? I thought I just had to know those things. No. Romans 10, verse 9 says this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not just intellectual knowledge, but it has to start there. It comes to a place where these facts grip your heart with a love for Christ and your will is submitted to him. It's no longer about you. You are trusting in him and that's evidenced by the fact that you actually have a love for him and a desire to walk in his ways and to know his will and to follow it. The one who is saved is the one who believes in their heart and the one who is actually trusting Christ fully as the payment for their sin. There is a love for Christ. I want you to know this is the gospel. The very first sermon when the church was born, 50 days from this event at Pentecost, remember Peter? I want you to know that Peter, we saw what he looked like when he is doing it life on his own, right? Denial. 50 days later, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, he's a different man because of the resurrection. And he stands up, and there's all these that are gathered, thousands we know, that are gathered, many of which were the same ones that were called for the crucifixion of Jesus. And he preaches a message. And you know what the heart of his message is? That Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He is alive. The agony of death could not hold him. It was impossible for Jesus to be held by its power. And just like Jesus said, it all really comes down to this. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you? Do you really believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? To the extent that this is real to you is to the extent that your life will be different. You see, to the extent that this future is real to you, it will change everything about how you live. Why is it so difficult for us to, to kind of face suffering, to face um, great difficulties in life, um, to face situations where, like, following Jesus might cost us, might cost us some money, might cost us some popularity. Um, boy, you know, to follow Jesus might, like, cost me some position in my family. Why is it so difficult to face even our own death or the death of our loved ones? And I'll tell you why it's so hard, because so often we think that this broken world is all there is. This broken world is all it is. This, this body, that's all I got. This money, man, that's all the money I'll ever have. This, this life, why, that's, that's the only life I'll, I'll, I'll ever have. But I want you to know, your future is far much, much greater than just this life. There's more to this life. And we have the certainty because Jesus has been risen from the dead. Johnny Erickson Todd, I'm sure you're familiar with her. Uh, 17 years old, when she's 17, she's involved in a diving accident. And it's horrific. Uh, ever since that accident, she's lived as a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. 
Um, when she, after this event, and she finally gets home from the hospital, uh, they like take her to church. And um, she kind of goes to church each time when she's wheeled in a wheelchair. And she's just sitting there trying to just even make sense of all this, you know? Body paralyzed, no hope for her. She speaks of a time where she was at a convention or hundreds of people gathered at this convention, and it was powerful, and the speaker said this, I want everyone to get down on their knees, and we're going to pray. And uh, she uh, actually starts crying at the sight of hundreds of people down on their knees praying, and of course, she stands out because she is like strapped into her wheelchair, and she can't actually do that. But she wasn't crying out of self-pity. She was crying because... She said it was so beautiful, it like gave her a picture of what heaven would look like. And she said this, quote, Sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump up, dance, kick, and do aerobics. And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? Friends, only the gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection gives us enormous hope in life. That's the only hope. It's Christ who is risen from the dead. So if you have a desire to dance and you can't dance, I want you to know that you will be able to dance. If you were lonely and you'd really like to know what real love is, I want you to know that love has been secured for you in Christ who is risen. If you feel empty, I want you to know There is an eternity waiting for you where you're going to be fully, fully satisfied. Tim Keller tells us this, that if you know that this is not the only world, not your only body, not your only life, you live differently. You don't just sit on the side of the pool. You don't stay on the sidelines. You take risks. You engage You give resources, you care, you make disciples, you live differently if you believe in the resurrection. And that's the power, the power of Christ risen from the grave. And you know, I want you to think for just a minute about those disciples. You know, the the scars, the holes in Jesus' wrists and his feet, I want you to know they thought those, those scars had wrecked their life, destroyed them, because they had pinned all their hopes on Jesus, and Jesus was crucified and died. But you know, the glorious reality of the resurrection is those very same scars that they thought were the end of their life were actually the salvation of their life. When they put their hands into his hand, and as they'll do and see in in eternity, there was a man with nail-scarred hands as a reminder of just how greatly we're loved. And I think you're going to find this. Despite the great difficulties and hardships and pains of this life, the injustice, 
and things that are just horrific that are, are just even difficult to even speak of, I think you're going to find in eternity that the worst things that ever happen to you will only enhance just the thrill of being in heaven with a risen Lord. Friends, eternal relationship with Christ is only found in his resurrection life. Let's pray. Lord.